All right, well, as I mentioned today, we are diving back into our study in the book of Acts here in chapter 4. And if you are just joining us, if you weren't here, we started this back in September. We've made it as far as chapter 4. We're going slow. But if you're just joining us you know, right now, I don't want you to feel like you are walking into the middle of a movie. So I want to catch you up really quickly. The book of Acts is about the birth of the early church. It's when God poured out his spirit on 120 people that were meeting in an upper room in Jerusalem, and God just did an incredible work through this group of people that they literally turned their world upside down. And we're studying the book of Acts because we want to be an effective representation of God's people and God's church in this broken world. And we believe the book of Acts gives us a great template for what that looks like. Now, so far in our study in the book of Acts, we have seen some first. We saw the first outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. That led to the first sermon that Peter preached there in Acts chapter 2, which also led to the first mass salvation as 3,000 people responded to that sermon and given their lives to Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 3, we saw the first recorded miracle in the book of Acts as uh, Peter and John were on their way to the temple to go and pray, and they're coming through the gate beautiful. There was a man sitting there begging, a lame man, the scripture tells us he had been lame for 40 years and he's asking for alms and Peter looks at him and says silver and gold I don't have but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth rise up and walk and that dude was healed instantly right there on the spot and everyone was amazed everyone that was around was just blown away which led to Peter's preaching a second sermon and that led to the first persecution that we see in the book of Acts. And that's where we pick up today in Acts chapter 4. Follow along as I read. It says, Now as they spoke to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of them came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that the rulers and elders and the scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, that being Peter and John, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And nor is there salvation in any 
any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Let's pause right there and pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in a setting like this, to gather together as a church family to hear what you would say to us. And so, God, we ask today that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak, that you would work in our hearts, that you would teach us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in Acts chapter 4, we see the first persecution that comes against the early church. And there was this mounting opposition that was, would, would come against the followers of Jesus Christ. And I've got two big ideas for you today. The first one is this, that I want us to consider this morning, is that opposition shouldn't surprise us. And I want to give you two reasons why. Opposition should not surprise us, number one, because whenever Jesus is working, Satan opposes. Whenever Jesus is working in a culture, whenever Jesus is working in a city, whenever Jesus is working in a church, whenever Jesus is working in your lives personally, you can count on that Satan is going to try and oppose what Jesus is doing. You see, the devil does not like it when people get excited about Jesus. He doesn't like to see people falling in love with Jesus or people wanting to, to come to Jesus or people wanting to serve Jesus. And I see this all the time as a pastor where someone, you know, wants to serve, they want to get involved in ministry. And so they start serving and immediately as they do, suddenly opposition hits. And you take a couple, a married couple that rarely fights and suddenly they're fighting all the time. Or they have kids that never act up and suddenly they're acting up all the time. And I have people that come to me and they're like, you know, man, I don't know if we can serve. I mean, all this stuff's going on in our life. And I'll tell them, hey, it's spiritual warfare. The devil, he's after you. He's not excited about what you are doing. You see, Satan loves idle Christians. You know why? They're no threat to him. They're not influencing anyone, so they're no threat to, they're the, no threat to him. But the last thing that Satan wants to see is you being excited about Jesus. The last thing that he wants to see is you telling your friends about Jesus or, or wanting to help others grow in Jesus. So he will seek to oppose you. He'll seek to distract you and discourage you. So don't be surprised. When you're facing opposition for wanting to follow Jesus and serve Jesus, because whenever Jesus is working, Satan always seeks to oppose that. That's number one. The second reason why opposition shouldn't surprise us is because Jesus told us to expect persecution. In John chapter 15, Jesus said this, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. 
As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. Remember the words that I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. So we shouldn't be surprised at opposition because Jesus said that we should expect persecution. The martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote from his cell in Flossingburg, Germany in 1937. He said, suffering is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Paul the Apostle said in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, all who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So Paul is saying, if you're desiring to live for Jesus, you should expect opposition. You should expect to be misunderstood. You should be, expect to be ridiculed. You should expect in some circles to even be hated. It comes with the territory. And listen, the more our culture turns away from God and the truths of the Bible, the greater and more intense this opposition is going to be. So the first thing we need to see, the first big idea, is opposition shouldn't surprise us because whenever Jesus is working, Satan opposes. And Jesus said that we should expect persecution. Let's look back at our text because I want you to see who is leading this opposition against the apostles. Look back at verse one. It says, now as they spoke to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And the idea there is they came upon them aggressively, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Notice the Sadducees are the ones who are leading this opposition, this persecution that we see in the book of Acts. And little can be said that's good about this group of religious leaders. They were the materialistic rationalists of their day. The Sadducees denied the supernatural They didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in spirits, and they didn't believe that there was a resurrection from the dead, which is why some people said that they, that's why they were sad, you see, because uh, (laughs) they didn't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees were motivated by the three Ps, power, position, and possessions, and they saw the followers of Jesus as a threat to all three. They saw this emerging church as a threat to their political structure. So they became relentless enemies of the followers of Jesus. And here we see them coming upon Peter and John aggressively. They laid hands on them. And notice what they're worked up about. In verse 2, it says that they were greatly disturbed that these guys were teaching about the resurrection. And here's the thing that I want us to spend the rest of our time together on today. This is our second big idea that we're going to talk about today. And it's this, that even though this opposition was coming on strong, Jesus was still at work. 
Even though this opposition was coming on strong, Jesus was still being manifested in the midst of the opposition. And this is what I want us to spend the rest of our time on today considering is how. How was Jesus manifested in the midst of this opposition? And the first thing, number one, that I want us to see is this, is that the gospel prevailed. Look at verse 4. It says, however, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Now catch this. We saw in chapter 2, Peter preaches, and 3,000 people came to Christ. 3,000 people began to follow Christ. Well, here we see 2,000 more begin to follow Jesus. During this time, in the midst of this opposition, Jesus is being manifested because the gospel is prevailing. And this is one of the reasons why, church, I'm not worried about growing persecution here in America. I'm not. You see, if the Lord tarries, his coming for us, If he tarries, the opposition against the followers of Jesus Christ is going to get more intense. We need to realize that. We need to understand that there are those out there, there's an agenda at play today where they want to silence our voice. But even if it does get more intense, that does not worry me one bit. And here is why. Right now, in places in the world where the gospel is prevailing the most, the gospel is prevailing the most in nations where it's against the law to preach about Jesus. It's against the law to talk about Jesus. A good example of that is in China. Did you know the largest Christian population in the world today is in China? Communist China. Now, it meets largely underground, but the gospel has prevailed in that country for decades now in the face of great opposition. Iran is another place where it's against the law to be a Christian, but the gospel is prevailing in Iran right now where thousands are coming to Christ on a regular basis. You know, when I was in college, my favorite Christian band was DeGarmo and Key. And I heard Dana Key, the lead singer of DeGarmo and Key, say something once that has always stuck with me. This is what he said. He said, you know, there's a lot of people praying right now for revival. He said, but maybe we should be praying for persecution. And he said, because every time in the history of the church where there has been great persecution, it has resulted in revival. And that's a profound statement. And right now, there's a lot of talk about revival. There's a lot of songs being sung about revival. There's a lot of us who are praying that God would bring revival. And maybe it's going to come out of this growing opposition. Because you see, in times of persecution, those who are not serious about Jesus, they fade away. Because the cost is too high. 
But those who are serious about Jesus, they stand up and they become more impactful. And revival is the result of that. And that's exactly what we see happening here in Acts chapter 4. Jesus is being manifested in the midst of this opposition because the gospel was prevailing and masses, over 2,000 people, come to Christ. Let's look back at our text, verse 5. It says, and it came to pass on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Now, the court where Peter and John were brought was called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the supreme court of the Jews. And there were three groups that formed the Sanhedrin. There were the rulers, the elders, and the scribes, or the teachers of the law. Now, Annas, a Pharisee, or a Sadducee, he was the high priest at this time. He was the high priest from 6 AD to 15 AD. And so he's the leader of this group, of this Sanhedrin. And Annas would arrange for five of his sons and one of his son-in-laws to follow him as the high priest. You could say it was their family business. And even when he wasn't the high priest, he kind of served as the godfather type of role over this group because these guys were religious thugs. And so Peter and John are brought before this group and set in the midst of them to be interrogated. And Peter and John were asked, by what power, by what name have you done this? By what authority do you do this? Did you heal this man? And and you're saying these things. That's what these guys were worried about, their authority. Who said you could do this? And I want you to notice Peter's response, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. Now, I want you to notice here, in Peter's response, we see the second way that Jesus is manifested in the midst of opposition, and that's through the preaching of the Word of God. And I love this, because we have a saying around here at Calvary Vista, we like to say this, that we need to keep the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing is simply Jesus. That's our focus And I want you to notice, Peter isn't challenging their agenda. Peter isn't getting into a political debate here about authority and where it comes from. Peter is simply talking about and pointing these guys to Jesus. Because this is what Peter learned from Jesus. You see, Jesus came into the world... When the world was living under heavy Roman oppression, Rome was the dictatorship that was in power. But when Jesus is here in his public ministry, he's not attacking Rome. 
He's not challenging the authority of Rome, even though he was continually being asked to do that. People were continually seeking to get him to challenge the authority of Rome. Like, for instance, the time where they asked him, should we pay taxes to Rome? Remember what he said? Show me a coin. He goes, whose image is on the coin? They said, Caesar's. He goes, okay. Render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And this was the point. Caesar's image is on the coin. It's on our money. So pay taxes. But God's image is on you. Because you have been made in the image of God. So give yourself to God. And guys, this is what we need to remember. Jesus was primarily focused on the souls of men. That's what he was concerned about. He wasn't here to overthrow the government or to challenge Roman oppression. The souls of men who were living under the power of a greater authority and oppression than Rome. That's what he was concerned about. That mankind was living under the power of sin and the power of Satan and the power of death. So Jesus came to rescue mankind from that oppression because this is what Jesus understood. Jesus understood that when the soul of a man changes, when a man gives himself to God, that can result in that man's entire family being changed. And when families begin to change, that can change a city. And when cities begin to change, that can change a county. And when counties begin to change because people are turning to Jesus, that can change a state. And when states begin to change, that can change a nation. And when nations begin to change, that can change the world's. That's what Jesus was focused on, and that's exactly what happens in the book of Acts. Because we're told that this is what happened through this movement of the early church. In Acts 17, verse 6, it says about the early church, these are those who turned the world upside down. Isn't that amazing? We could say the world was already upside down, so they turned it right side up. That was the very first Jesus people movement. And what our world needs today is another one. Can I get an amen to that? So Peter doesn't get into a debate about power and authority. He simply preaches the word and points to Jesus. Now, having said this, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we as Christians should just ignore politics not saying that we live in a country where we have the privilege to be able to vote and we need to vote every single christian should vote it's imperative and we need to vote biblically that's why i fully support and i'm excited about a ministry in our church impact north county which is seeking to encourage believers here in our church and outside of our church what it looks like to have a biblical worldview i love that And we definitely need Christians who are running for office, especially on the lower levels of government where we can make the most impact, like the mayor, like city council, like school boards. It's one of the ways that we as believers fulfill our calling that Jesus gave us to be salt and light. 
It's one of the reasons why I was privileged this month to give the invocation at the swearing in of our new mayor, Mayor Franklin. That I was able to pray there in the city council chambers because he's sought to bring prayer back into those meetings because he is a follower of Jesus. So it's important that, that we realize that how important those things are, that we support and stand for leaders who are standing for morality. There is definitely a place to make our voice known. There's definitely a place for us to go out like we did yesterday with, with the, the love life and do the prayer walk in front of Planned Parenthood. About 120 of us were gathered there. It was absolutely just an amazing time. It's important that we do that as believers. But, but, but understand this. The answer for the problems in our world are not going to be found in the political arena. That's the point. The answer is found in Jesus and Jesus transforming lives. And when people whose lives have been transformed begin to live for Jesus and be the church in this broken world by living like Jesus, that's when real change can happen. And that's why what Peter's doing here is so important. He's preaching the word because Jesus is manifested in the preaching of the word. Now, there's something here I don't want you to miss, though. Look at verse 8 again. It says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. How is Peter doing this sharing and preaching that he's doing? He's doing it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, we saw that the disciples were first baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's when the Holy Spirit came upon them and empowered them. And Jesus called it a baptism. And he referred to it as being filled with the Holy Spirit. And here it says that Peter was filled again with the Holy Spirit. So we could say he was baptized afresh. He was empowered afresh. And we noted there, in our study of Acts chapter 2, that we need to, as believers, as followers of Jesus, to be constantly being filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit. We need to recognize our utter dependency upon the Holy Spirit working in our lives to be the followers of Jesus that we are called to be. It was key for Peter, and it's key for us. I mean, we've seen, we saw in Peter's life what he was like without the power of the Holy Spirit, right? He was self-confident, bold, yes, prideful. He, he would say, I mean, he's rebuking Jesus. That's how, how prideful he was. He tells Jesus, when Jesus says, all of you are going to forsake me tonight, Peter's like, the rest of these losers might forsake you, but not me. I'm ready to die for you. That was Peter in the power of his own energy. And you know what? In my flesh, I can be the same way. And so can you. I can be bold. I have no problem being bold. I'm Italian. <laughs> We're not afraid of conflict at all. I have no problem whatsoever. In my flesh, I can be rude and I can be obnoxious and I can be dis disrespectful of others' opinions. And I think that's how a lot of Christians are coming across today on issues. Angry, obnoxious and rude. 
Some are great at winning arguments, but they lose the soul in the process. I would rather lose the argument and win the soul. I'll never forget back in 1989 when we went on our first missions trip to Yugoslavia. And a gal on our team, her name was Linda, was out sharing one day at this park, talking to these people about Jesus. And this guy came up and started challenging her, asking these questions. And, and Linda was you know, a great lover of Jesus, a great light, but not a theologian. And she, she answered the guy. She says, you know, I, have no, I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know this, that Jesus loves you and he died on the cross to pay the price for your sins and he rose again to give you life. And the guy got all frustrated. And he asked her another question. He goes, you know what, sir? I don't know the answer to that question either. But I know this, that Jesus loves you. And he died on the cross to pay the price for your sins. And he rose again to give you life. And he asked her another question. And she answered in the same way. And this guy stormed off. But he came back the next day. And this is what he said. He was, as I was trying to go to sleep last night, those words that you spoke to me haunted me. And he said, what do I need to do to give my life to Jesus? And he got saved. And you see, that's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. It's why Spurgeon said, we don't need to defend the gospel because the gospel is like a lion. You just, you know, what do you do with a lion? You just let it out of its cage. And that's what we need to do with the gospel. We just let it out and it does its work. So like Peter, we just need to keep pointing people to Jesus. We need to keep the main thing the main thing and rely upon the Spirit of God and be dependent upon the Holy Spirit to speak the truth in love. And that's what we see Peter doing here. Peter is respectful. He's not rude, but he is speaking the truth. He's not holding back. They're asking, hey, by what authority did you do this? He says, you want to know what authority? He says, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, and he says this, whom you crucified. Ouch. That was truth. He's just telling it like it is. And and we need to not back down as believers in sharing the truth, even though we might, we know that the truth might offend. Peter says that it was Jesus whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. By him, by Jesus, this man stands before you whole. Peter's speaking the truth. He's saying, hey, you guys crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. And Peter is drawing their attention to the power of God to right the wrongs of human sin and failure. But then Peter says something really, really interesting. Look at verse 11. He says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, here's what Peter's doing. Don't miss this. He's quoting Psalm 118, verse 22. This was a messianic psalm. In other words, it was a psalm that was speaking prophetically about the Messiah. And it's speaking about how the Messiah was going to be rejected by the Jewish leaders, the very ones who oversaw the building of the temple. And the building of the temple in Jerusalem was symbolic of the building of their religious system. And the psalmist was using the analogy of the cornerstone. Now get this. The cornerstone was typically the largest and heaviest stone because it formed the footing of the building. The cornerstone was at the foundation of the building. 
The cornerstone set the angles for the rest of the building. And if the cornerstone was not lined up right, the building would be off kilter and it could collapse. So think of the cornerstone as the reference point of the entire building. And Peter is saying plainly here, you guys fulfilled the prophecy there in Psalm 118 because Jesus is the cornerstone spoken of and you guys rejected him by crucifying him. And here, this is what, this is really, really important. This is what we need to see. Jesus is the cornerstone for life. Don't miss this. Jesus is the cornerstone for life, for living, for our standards. And this is why, listen, we should not be confused in our culture about marriage. Because Jesus plainly taught that marriage was between a man and a woman. This is why Jesus, he's the reference point. This is why we should not be confused in our culture about gender because Jesus clearly taught that God made them male and female. And this is why we should not be confused in our culture about when life begins. Because you see, it was Jeremiah the prophet who said this, the word of the Lord came to me and said, I chose you before I formed you in the womb and I set you apart before you were born and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That's what Jeremiah said. And get this, Jesus, the reference point, the cornerstone, he affirmed again and again that Jeremiah was a prophet of God and he knew what he was talking about. But it wasn't just Jeremiah, it was also the psalmist David who wrote in Psalm 139, for it was you who created my inward parts and you knit me together in my mother's womb. He was clearly, both Jeremiah and David were saying, life begins at conception. And Jesus affirmed both the writings of David, the psalmist, and Jeremiah the prophet. He affirmed that both of these men were voices speaking for God. And you see, this is the point. We can't believe in Jesus and not believe what Jesus taught and affirmed to be true. Well, some would say, well, how do we know that Jesus is right? Well, it's what Peter said here. He was crucified, and three days later, he rose again from the dead. And no one has ever done that. So Jesus was, you can clap to that. Jesus was was proving that he was exactly who he said he was and that he knew exactly what he was talking about. And this is Peter's point. Jesus is the cornerstone that the psalmist said that you religious leaders would reject. You would reject him by crucifying him, but God raised him from the dead and he is alive. Now, Peter would write in his epistle that there are only two responses that one can have to Jesus as the cornerstone. I want to read this passage to you. We're almost done. First Peter chapter two, he said, therefore, it is also contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe he is precious. Precious. 
But to those who are disobedient, that would be those who don't believe, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. Peter says, look, there's only two responses. You can believe. And to those who believe, he's precious. To those who believe Jesus is the one that they have built their lives upon. But the other reaction is to not believe, to be disobedient to the word that's been appointed to us, the gospel. And to those who are who don't believe, he says he's a rock. They stumble being disobedient to the word because he's a stumbling rock and a rock of offense. You know what God's going to ask people? This is the question that every man stands before God and they have to answer this question. What did you do with my son? That's the question. Jesus said, there's no neutral ground. You're either for me or you are against me. Those are the only two choices. And if you're here today or you're watching online and you're not a follower of Jesus, those are your only two choices. And I want to encourage you today to open up your heart to believe in Jesus and follow him. So we see here through Peter's talking to these men that Jesus was being clearly manifested in the preaching of the word. We have one more very quickly. How was Jesus being manifested in the face of opposition? This is number three. Jesus was manifested in the lives of his followers. Look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled because they realized that they had been with Jesus. They looked at these men and they're like, they remind us of that Jesus guy that we didn't like, that we killed. They saw their boldness. They saw how, even though they were uneducated, untrained, how how articulately they were speaking the word of God. How did they learn that? Peter and John learned that because they spent time with Jesus. They spent time sitting at the feet of, of Jesus. And the same thing is true for us. That's why we're taking this week to fast is because fasting is feasting on Jesus and his word. And the more time that we spend with Jesus, guys, this is what happens. We become like him. It's like two married people that really love each other. What happens? They, they start to just, be, they start to even look alike sometimes. They start to talk alike. They start to think alike. They, they're finishing each other's sentences. Why? Because they're spending that time together. And that's what happens to us. As we're spending time drawing near to Jesus, we start becoming transformed to be more like Jesus. And that's God's goal. Romans eight twenty nine. He says, this is my goal, is to conform you into the image of my own dear son. Listen, God's goal in your life is not to make a better version of yourself. A lot of books and even sermons out there today that that kind of are giving off that idea. That is not God's goal. God's goal is to make you more like Jesus. And that's what the world needs to see. is people whose lives have been touched by Jesus, drawing near to Jesus to become more like Jesus. And that's the best compliment that anybody can give us. I'll close with this thought. Right now, we are living in a culture where the American utopian dream is being shattered. 
In this time of rising inflation and interest rates, it's making it very, very hard for people to live and survive. I talk to young people all the time who are depressed because they realize, especially here in the West, that they're never going to be able to afford to buy a house. It just seems impossible. And on top of that, rent is enormous right now. It's challenging. I talk to older people who are wondering, am I going to have enough to be able to retire? Is my 401k going to last? Is social security going to run out? And then we look at the moral decline in our nation and people are wondering, is it even safe to send our kids to public schools? But the problem is, I can't afford private school. And I'm not sure I can do the homeschool thing. And we see all of this political unrest and we're realizing that that everything that made our country great is being threatened. And there's two reactions we can have. We can curse the government and hope that they get their act together. Or we can realize as followers of Jesus that people all around us are facing these same challenges and frustrations. But for everyone around us who is frustrated and discouraged because the longing in their hearts they're realizing is not being satisfied, we can say that we know the only one who can really satisfy the longing in the heart, and that's Jesus. And church, imagine. Imagine what would happen if those of us who claim to know Jesus and have been satisfied by Jesus, focused our eyes on Jesus, not the economy, not politics, if we made it our priority to draw near to Jesus and get closer to Jesus, this is what would happen. Jesus would manifest himself in and through our lives. And people around us would look at us and they would say, what's different about you? How come you're not freaking out? How come you're not all depressed? How come I see in your life that you have joy and you have peace, that you, see, you seem calm in the midst of all of this chaos? How come you're not mad at the government? How come you're not discouraged? And we could tell them because our hope is in Jesus. And he's the one satisfying our hearts. And guys, that would be amazing. And that's what this week is all about that we're gathered together here three times a day to fast and pray and seek the Lord. And I believe that God is going to be working in our midst. And people, as we come to pray and seek God, they're going to see a difference in you. And I think that that can even start right now. As we close our time together, I think it would only be appropriate for us to respond again. I'm going to have the band come out right now to respond in song to respond in surrender, to bring our hearts before the Lord and, and, and to say, Jesus, you're the one. You are precious to us. We talked about last week in fasting. That fasting is saying that, Jesus, you're not, you're not just what we need, but you're what we want. And we need, I think, to just declare that right now here in this place. And as we do, I'm going to ask our pastors, elders, our leaders, people on our prayer team to come up front here because I think there's some of you that are here today that you you need prayer because you've lost your focus. You are discouraged and distracted. You're, You're maybe living with fear. Maybe you're here today and you do need to get right with Jesus. 
as the band begins to play, if that's you, if you need prayer today, I want you to come up and these guys will both, they'll, they'll all be up front here up front and I want to encourage you to come and just let them pray with you and pray over you today. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for this time. We thank you, Lord, for this example that we see once again in the early church. And God, we want to come just right now and surrender to you. Jesus, we want you to be all that we want, not just all that we need. Guys, let's bring our hearts to the Lord right now in song. And if you need prayer, come up and get with some of these guys or gals that will be up here praying.